Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So I've decided that we're going to outsource the start of this episode. Interesting. <laughs> so you, you don't like my intro? <gasps> oh, don't take it that way. No, no. <laughs> I use chat GPT, right? This mm. is this chat bot that interacts in a very conversational way and generates surprisingly comprehensive text. Mm. So I asked it for an introduction to a podcast segment about the use of chat GPT by students in France and the rising concern from schools and university. And then I put the answer in a text-to-speech generator, and here's what we got. Hello and welcome to this segment of our podcast where we'll be discussing the increasing use of ChatGPT by students in France and the growing concerns of schools and universities. In recent years, ChatGPT has become a popular tool among students in France as a quick and convenient way to access information and complete assignments. However, with this rise in usage, schools and universities are starting to raise concerns about the impact of relying on AI technology on critical thinking and academic integrity. In this segment, we'll be exploring these concerns and the steps that schools and universities are taking to address them. So stay tuned as we delve into the topic of ChatGPT and its role in education in France. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lordy. Uh, well, I guess I can just pack my bags and go home then. Yeah, it's not bad, right? I mean, it, it came up with these issues of academic integrity mm. and critical mm. thinking, which I did not feed it. Mm. But it's pretty dull, isn't it? I mean, the robot voice doesn't really help. But it's it's not the most thrilling intro. No, I, th I think you're right. It's it's definitely not riveting. It's not it's <laughs> not it's not doing anything for me. But then, well, you know, not all podcasts can be riveting. Maybe all the time. <laughs> ouch. Let's be honest. Ouch, ouch. Uh, they're, they're not noble literature, are they? Are they? Yeah. Well, although we try. We try. But yeah. um, students are banking on this sort of blandness. Um, and they've started using the chatbot in school. I mean, mm. for some of them, it gets them off the hook for their homework assignments. Other students are actually using it more deeply. So that's a business student, Théo, who used ChatGPT to help write his master's thesis. He obviously doesn't want to be identified. And he asked the chatbot to do a literature review, lay out the structure of the thesis, and then write up the methodology. It came up with a very credible structure, he said, though he didn't use everything the machine wrote. He had done his reading, so he rewrote parts that didn't make sense, but he says it gave good ideas that he used in the thesis. Plus, this is not an isolated case, mm -hmm. he says. Some of his friends have used ChatGPT even more, taking all of what it generated without question. Well, that's the worrying part, mm -hmm. isn't it? You know, they're not having to think. Yeah. And it also means students are not learning how to do their own research. Exactly. And, and of course, trying to figure out who uses it and how they use it is, is worrying. A lot of teachers and professors are trying to say, like, you know, <laughs> which of my students is just a bad writer? and which yeah. is used, the computer. Sciences Po just last week became the first French university, actually one of the first in the world, to ban the use of ChatGPT and other AI text generators. So they say using them without citing them is, is cheating. But will a ban, in fact, solve the problem? I mean... Probably not, right? AI isn't going away. Computers have already been used, for example, in the news business, writing mm -hmm. short articles, even reading newscasts. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've seen that in Japan, for example. Mm. Um, yeah, I guess our jobs are on the line, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, a lot is on the line. Um, and it's going to get worse, or, I mean, or better, depending on your perspective. Mm. The technology is evolving very quickly. Computation power allows these machines to, to learn using a massive amount of data, 
generated by humans, For to be moment. fair. Well, to be well, I mean, it's using all the books and all the stuff on the internet. Um, and this, this is called the deep learning. This is what we hear, one of those catchphrases. Mm-hmm. Last summer, Jean-Gabriel Ganassia, who's a computer science professor at the Sorbonne University, used a text generator, not ChatGPT, to write part of a column that he writes on the ethics of research for the monthly popular science magazine, La Recherche. I find it really impressive. I was a little bit, I cannot say frightened, but I was surprised by the quality of the text. I asked a very simple question. Automatic text generation, plagiarism of ideas, and scientific integrity. And so that was your prompt to the machine? Just this, yeah. And I was very impressed. I had a, a two-page paper. I translated it in French using DPL, and it was well-structured, were sentences which were correctly built with a, a lexicon which was quite broad. There were some oddities, something which were... Okay, but... Uh, it, it passed your test. In a way, yes. It looked like bad Wikipedia, so you have very general sentence. But there were something which was, I think, interesting because they mentioned what they call paper mills. And they discussed the role of this paper mill in uh, uh, scientific production. What is a paper mill? Yes, a paper mill is a machine which is able to build scientific papers. The scientists which are not very honest <laughs> send to journal and hope to be accepted. And so the machine picked up on this while it was looking through, I guess, doing its research and picked up on this phenomenon. Yes, and this is the reason why I submitted this thesis uh, uh, to the machine because I wanted to see what what she was, uh, it was able <laughs> to generate, and. I was very impressed. Even I didn't really agree with the text because they say, oh, yes, this is plagiarism. And it's an open question because the text generation is not exactly what we have in mind when we mention plagiarism. Plagiarism, in a way, is robbery. You steal a person and you appropriate what he wrote on your name. And here you just reuse the words of all the population. And this is exactly what we all do. So we cannot say exactly it's plagiarism. So it's difficult to characterize the type of infraction or the type of problem you have with this. Well, I actually think it's really interesting because reading the text, having read what you, what you, what you made the machine wrote, it, it was very flat. Like you said, it's sort of bad Wikipedia. It's very flat and there's very little, like it says, yes, paper mills exist and they submit you know, their papers to journals. But it didn't give us any examples. It didn't cite anything. Mm. So, like, as you said, this idea of plagiarism, it's hard to see where it's plagiarizing from. Mm. How does this play into how it's being used in academia or in research settings? So, concerning education, when you write the text, I'm afraid to say that uh, it's better than some of my students, not all, (laughs) fortunately. It's uh, not very good. But not very bad. And so, so when you when you, when it's being used in a college setting as a professor or teacher, you might not notice. No, maybe, and you say, okay, he's not very original. Maybe <laughs> there are some problem <laughs> with the reference, but it's it's quite correct. So, have you have any of your students ever used any of these tools to submit papers to you? Not yet. <laughs> so I have to say that I'm. Professor of Computer Science. So what we want our students write is uh, maybe solve a problem. And so the 
Wording is not so important. The problem is that when you teach, you train them. And when you ask them to write a paper or something, is to help them to train and understand what are the difficulties. So if they use this kind of tools, even if they have an average mark, the problem is okay, they will not be trained. So it's in a way, it's a failure of our education system. In, in what sense? What do you mean as a failure of the education system? The fact that some students want to use this kind of thing to write their text. Yeah. In, in a sense, what? Because they're too focused in on the grade and not thinking in terms of learning for learning's sake? Yes, exactly. We know that it's so important today for them to have that exam, but in a way, a, a good education is based not on the diploma, but on what they learn. And the problem is if they use this kind of techniques, they will not learn and they will not be able in the future to write a text. But I think the problem is more for the professor, because if you feel that you were abused by the student, it, it makes you really uncomfortable. I think this is more the problem of professors than, than the problem of students. Mm, so worse for teachers than for students, he says. Yeah, yeah, because one of the big issues, of course, is going to be testing and evaluating your students. Yeah, and we know France loves uh, exams, tests. Mm -hmm. uh, my kids get one virtually every week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it is the bedrock of a lot of education systems. Mm. Um, I talked about this with Thierry de Villiers, who's the founder of a startup, Evidence B, that's come up with modules for students, for elementary and high school students, to learn vocabulary and math. The modules use cognitive psychology ideas, but also AI tools to personalize them, specifically for students who are struggling. The education ministry has actually recently provided access to the math module for all primary schools in the country. So that's something. We, we talked about the use of AI in education. He is, of course, enthusiastic about it. But he says it will require teachers rethinking their approach to teaching and testing. When you evaluate something and the format of your evaluation can be provided by a good paper written by ChatGPT, your evaluation doesn't work anymore. We call it ChatGPT. What you're describing, though, seems to be like the basis of a lot of what the French education system is based on. You know, research this subject, write an essay, construct some, some thoughts and, and hand in a paper. Um, and you're saying these tools are actually going to force a re-examination of how we, how we do things. So we have the baccalaureate in France. It's a, a, a symbolic evaluation. This is the big exam that you do at the end of high school exactly. where you have oral exams and written exams to make sure you, you learned everything in the last 12 years. Exactly. But more and more, it has been several years now that we have a kind of constant evaluation and the baccalaureate is not anymore the key timing for your higher education. So this evaluation on the fly is more and more going into the French education system. So this is one kind of answer. The other one, it's um, we have been all over the world uh, seen the mass effect of the calculators. And when the calculators came, just like ChatGPT, they say, okay, if you don't do any more the addition, the subtraction, it will ruin the mass uh, learning. So there are still people that say that there is a, an impact of having this calculator. But those tools that empower the capacity of finding knowledge for students, of course, will push teacher or academy and exam to change the way that they do the evaluation, but it will accommodate easily, I feel. Well, that's, that's interesting that you say because, you know, France has a very centralized education system. It's top down. Do you think that it's as it's constructed today, the education system will be able to welcome these tools 
in a way that will be effective for students? Um, it's a very centralized system. You're right. There is a Ministry of Education, then you have an academy inspector and then the teacher. But the strongest thing that we have in the French education system, and we have union also to, to protect that, is the pedagogical freedom of the teacher. Every teacher has the ability to decide the way he will teach, the way he wants to use this tool or not, and that. You have a national curriculum. This is very top-down. But within this national curriculum, the pedagogy, which is the key of a teacher, it's a freedom. And there is a lot of group going on now, actually, in France about ChatGPT, how you can use that to make ChatGPT provide an answer and to check uh, what is right, what is wrong, what are the sources, why is there is bias in the sources of ChatGPT, and it's a way to construct a better knowledge. So I see the teacher taking these tools to increase the capacity of students of being critical thinkers. So that's the way teacher will behave. Some will forbid that and some will use it. So you're saying, though, then, you know, teachers have a huge amount of freedom to deal with this and incorporate these tools or not. Yeah. Then obviously you're in the business of trying to encourage them to use certain tools and to be creative and think outside the box. But, do, I mean, how do you see the sort of culture of teachers and the way teachers are taught? in their openness to technology like this and to, you know, rethinking how they have been evaluating students and interacting with students. Yeah, I launched a startup on EdTech, so I have to be on the optimist side of the using of ICT. Obviously, also COVID, who stopped every education system all over the world, even in France, helped teachers to progress in the confidence and in the use of this kind of tool. So you have the early adopters, you have the one that like to test this kind of new tool, you have those that don't want any uh, digital tool in the All are good, I would say. What is good is if a teacher is confident with the, the tool they use, it have not to be a general fear or general uh, obligation. Hmm. Well, clearly he has a vested interest in promoting mm -hmm. these kind of tools. I must say, for the moment, I'm a little bit sceptical, yeah. uh, especially with younger kids, you know, the, the idea that they're going to get their hands on these tools when they haven't even learned to be critical yet. We'll see. Quand on pouvait, bon an, mal an, partir à l'âge de 60 ans À la retraite Mettez son plus beau costard pour faire honneur au pot de départ où l'on nous offrait par égal une épuisette. So a song there about retiring mm. at, at 60. At 60. Yeah, pension. All this talk of pensions is, is rife in France at the moment, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. The government's pushing a reform to raise the minimum retirement age from 62, actually, to 64. And it's not going over well. It's mm. being debated hotly in Parliament. And it's drawn millions of protesters out into the streets. The current system, where people in work pay for the pensions of current retirees, was founded in 1945 at the end of World War II. But the very first pensions go much further back than that, Sarah, mm. to the 17th century and Louis XIV. Oh, wow, the Sun King. Yeah, and he shone his light, first of all, on the Navy and then ballet dancers. He signed the first edict on the 22nd of September, 1670. 
1873, so 450 years ago, in Nancy. So why those two professions? I mean, these seems like random groups of people, the Navy and ballet dancers. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was the brainchild of Jean-Baptiste Colbert. Louis XIV's finance minister. Yeah, but also Secretary General of the Royal Navy. Ah. Now, at the time, France was fighting in what's known as the Franco-Dutch War, uh, in uh, which began in 1672. It was trying to get possession of the Spanish Netherlands, fighting in particular against the British and the Spanish, both of which had very strong navies. So France needed to be able to shore up its prowess on the seas, but it was struggling to recruit sailors, or at least good ones. At the time, it relied a lot on so-called press gangs, and at its worst, this involved men being plied with alcohol in inns, then getting bashed over the head and waking up to find themselves in irons on a warship. So more or less enforced enrollment. Mm -hmm. Probably not the best way to get the most motivated or disciplined people involved. Yeah, and Colbert understood that. Mm. Uh, He saw that the system wasn't working and that the Navy needed to make itself a bit more attractive. So he came up with this system where the Marines were enrolled by age and to encourage them to do this, he offered them perks, including an invalidity pension in case you got injured. Yeah, which probably happened frequently in in wars. (laughs) Yeah, and in the 1673 edict then, he introduced a caisse des invalides de la Marine Royale, a fund for Royal Navy invalids. The sailors themselves made a small contribution, about 2.5% of their wages, and it was used to fund the construction and upkeep of two big hospitals, one in Rochefort on the west coast and the other in Toulon in the south. The one in Rochefort, by the way, was finally inaugurated much later in 1788 and also ended up receiving widows and orphans of sailors. All right, so this was for the injured, but how did it turn into an old age pension? Well, back in the 17th century, and indeed for a long time afterwards, people continued working until they literally dropped. Ah, so retirement was pretty much the same as getting injured and invalidity. Yeah, exactly. And and it was very tough, of course, for people who didn't have savings or family to help them. So Colbert's system gave the Marines a kind of security net for their old age. And it still exists. It's known as the Établissement National des Invalides de la Marine, the National Establishment of Navy Invalids. It's a special regime with a fund for health care and another one for pensions. Ah, so one of these special regimes, um, is it under threat? I mean, mm. part of the idea of reforming the pension system right now is to do away with these special regimes. There are 42 of them, often set up for people working physically, demanding jobs. No, in fact, uh, it's not under threat. For whatever reason, the marine pension is not on the chopping board. I, I guess that's good for them. <laughs> mm. Okay, so that's the marines. Now, what about the ballet dancers? Louis XIV was a big ballet fan, it turns out. Ah. Uh, He performed for the first time in public, uh, age 12, and throughout his reign, he did a lot to promote dancing. In 1698, so 25 years after the Navy, he signed an edict setting up a pension system for the dancers of the Paris Opera. It introduced a retirement age of 40, and that remained in place right up until 2010, when then-President Nicolas Sarkozy raised it to 42. And under the current proposed pension reform, the 154 dancers of the Paris Opera Ballet Corps also get to keep their special regime. (laughs) 
So, Sarah, this current pension reform has brought, as we've said, many people out onto the streets. Yeah, yeah. The first two demos drew over two million people across France and, and more protests are being planned. And if you want to get your message across during these protests and get, of course, the attention of the media, then you need a good, clear sign with a clever slogan. Yeah. And here in France, on any demo worth its salt, you'll see a very tall man with his arms outstretched in a V-shape holding up a very big sign with a catchy slogan written in big capital letters in four primary colours. Uh, I've seen that guy, yeah. And this photo gets picked up by a lot of agency photographers and often becomes the photo used by newspapers on their front pages covering these demos. Yeah, because his placards are so distinctive. Mm. I recently spotted one of them on a rally in London Demanding better pay for NHS in nurses. In London? Yeah, exactly. So it got me thinking, crikey, this guy is a phenomenon. Who is he? <laughs> so I wanted to find out a bit more about Placard Man, as the French press have dubbed him. His name is Jean-Baptiste Rédé, and he goes by the name of Voltuan, which makes you think of Volts and... Or Voltron. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he's a retired primary school teacher, and he lives rather modestly in Burgundy. And he's become a full-time activist. He's also a poet. So he's been on, you know, all the marches for climate justice, social justice, women's rights, animal rights. Uh, he's a vegetarian. Peace demos, you name it, he's there at the front carrying his placard. The one that launched him was... Écoutez la colère du peuple, listen to the people's rage, which he brandished in 2010 during, guess what? pension reform protests ah. <laughs> and he's still very mobilized on that issue today <laughs> i caught up with him just before the 31st of january demo in a parisian cafe because that's where he draws his famous placards i decided to commit full time for social rights ecology peace and real democracy that's yeah. my life i have been revolted since uh, childhood because uh, in my family uh, it was not all that uh, happy at all. No family uh, in harmony. Not much affection? Not at all. So I got affection with nature and animals first. That was my first family. Mm -hmm. And then my second family was uh, when I was 20 years old. I commit also for social rights and uh, peace and so on. Uh, I have always been revolting. So Jean-Baptiste, one of your very famous placards is Écoutez le, le yes. peuple en colère, mm. yes. listen to people. Yes, yeah. the people's rage, yeah. yes. So you've really become well known and very visible mm. through these very distinctive yes. placards which you hold up yes. uh, above your head. Uh, like a shout. I'm shouting, it's, it's a cry. It's a cry, always a cry for a better world. A word about the graphic art, because mm. this is what gets photographed mm. and this is what sometimes gets sent around the world. I chose to write in, in big capital letters with the main colours, basic colours, black, red, blue and green. And a few years later I uh, put uh, another one, uh, yellow because it, it is like a flash. When you see my signs on photo, it is very flashy, so yeah. it's good. And the, the big letters, it's an advantage because in the demonstrations, people can see the message from far. And mm. it's also because you are very tall, one yes. meter 92, so everybody can see these yes. placards mm. from afar. Mm. So the latest one that you've just done to go on the demonstration Today. against pension reform, what does it say? 
It says that Macron and Born, the president of the Prime Minister, have to resign uh, and to stop their pension reform. It's a play on words. Retraite. Because you say Macron Born doivent battre en retraite, which means they have to withdraw, literally, but also withdraw the pension reform. So it's clever. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's a friend of mine which gave me the idea. In general, I found my ideas myself. Because I, I think it over a long time before the demonstration. I come back to it uh, even by night. Sometimes I, uh, I think over new message. Mm-hmm. And yes, uh, there is another side always. Two messages always important. The two. So turning around the big yeah. placard here. How big is it? It's always it is, the same size. Always one meter large and one meter forty centimeters long. Always. And so here on the back, we've got a photograph of Bernard Arnault, of one of the richest men in the world. So he's the head of LVMH. He is uh, Louis Vuitton, Moet NC, etc. Champagne luxury goods. Yes, 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 luxury goods. The problem with Mr. Bernard Arnault is that he has been using uh, tax haven for years and years. He put his billions in six tax havens. Six. When you say there is no money to pay pensions, to help the disabled, to help the poor, and to invest in uh, ecological transition, which is urgent, we have plenty of money. But all this money is, uh, in majority, in tax havens. Mm-hmm. So in Bahamas, in the city, in Delaware, in uh, Guernsey, in Monaco, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, and so on, so on, so on, so on. So, so that's totally unfair. Totally unbearable. Of course, the European Union is taking measures to clamp down Not on enough. tax havens. Not enough. They have decided few percents of uh, tax on people like Bernard Arnault, but that's largely insufficient. Do you have any idea how many demonstrations you've taken part no. in in the last 10 years? No. I, I mean, hundreds? My answer is, when you fight, it is the same. When you love, you don't count what you do. You don't count. You go. I like to quote Albert Camus, who said, uh, you don't have only to notice the injustice in the world, you have to give your life for it. That's wonderful. I I love him. We have always to fight for a better world, but we have to fight pacifically, but with much motivation. You're retired now. Yes. So how do you live and how do you finance all of this? Because you don't live in Paris, so you travel up from Burgundy? Yes, I I take the train or or blah, blah, car. My pension is, is not at the top. But I have somehow enough to make a living because I don't have children, I don't have a TV, I don't have a car, I don't keep money uh, in my you bank. You don't have uh, any savings? Yeah, no property of my own. Uh, All your money goes into yes, protesting? And, and in poetry, because I have, I have written uh, a lot of poems who I signed in uh, bookshops in Paris and in uh, Provence, in France. Mm-hmm. Jean-Baptiste, sometimes mm. the demonstrations, especially in Paris, mm. have turned violent. Um, have you ever been caught up in anything unpleasant, any of the violence? Well, yes, one time in 1995. It was also a demonstration against the pension reform of Alain Juppé. He was a prime minister. France was blocked during nearly one month. And I was caught with other people uh, in the University of Jussieu, and I spent the night in custody. But uh, that's a long time ago. If things start turning a bit violent, Uh, do you always move away? What happens? I am uh, cautious. In demonstrations, we have to take care of of other people, not to walk on on people's feet, not to fall down. So I am very cautious because as my sign is big, I've never had an accident with it because I am always uh, holding it hard on the... 
And it's important to look everywhere what is happening. In the demonstration, I like to notice uh, other people's uh, signs. Because uh, when you revolt, you are very creative. When you revolt, as said Bob Marley, you get up, you stand up, fight for your rights. That's important. <laughs> so he's also in my pantheon of people I love. I have also organized myself mobilizations in Paris for Syrian refugees and Uyghurs. I have organized march to end pesticides. And we were received in the Ministry of Ecology. So what is wonderful in mobilization is that you always meet good people. I met many people uh, who are well-known and people who are not that well-known, but for, for me, there are no hierarchy. I don't feel a superior to a butterfly. That's uh, my philosophy of life. You say there's a sort of community almost when you're out demonstrating and, and most people are good, yeah. but have you sometimes encountered a little bit of resistance? I mean, some people might have said, you know, he's always at the front. Maybe you're drawing a little bit too much attention to yourself. It, 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 it is a minority. Who says that? Because most people, they come to me with a, a smile and say, oh, go on, I love your sign. It's wonderful, you are always here. But I, I answer them back immediately. You also, you, you fight and you are, you are engaged. You say you, you see me everywhere because you are everywhere. So I give back the compliment. What will make you stop one day? I often tell a, a joke about it. I, I said every joke there is uh, something uh, true inside. Is that when I will uh, pass over this life to begin others, uh, when I will be in, lying in the earth, I will have a, a double phone. Uh, yeah, a, a false bottom. Yes, to go uh, on demonstrations. So a false bottom, a trapdoor, right, in his coffin. That's quite an image. Yeah, so he can get out, as he said, you know, day and night mm. <laughs> any, at any moment. But, you know, talking of images, I noticed that on the Paris demo, a couple of signs, they were like mini versions of his work ah. using the same capital letters, the same four colors. The slogans, of course, were nowhere near as punchy, and the holders were not going the extra effort of holding them above their heads, so they were far less visible. But as they say, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So we've come to the end of the show. Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. Do you have any questions or comments? Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can send an email to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can also find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. And you can get previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back on the 9th of March. Bye for now, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Les heures supplémentaires peuvent être 5 fois moins majorées. Les apprentis mineurs peuvent primer 10 heures par jour. Les sapartiels à 24 heures, la semaine à 35 heures. Et d'autres attiquent à cœur que cette loi vide à jourer. C'est au service des exploiteurs, des groupes les plus dévastateurs. À qui cette loi fait des faveurs que l'État a couré. Le plafonnement des indemnités, on veut pas se bourrer. C'est pas pour aider le salarié, car on veut mieux que ça. Ouais on veut mieux que ça. On veut mieux que ça. On veut mieux que ça.